Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed we do. I'm Alec Hogg, and with me in our virtual studio, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart from Biz News. Well, it's been a very big day indeed for Steinhoff shareholders, one they would love to forget. It appears as though the settlement process that was put together has hit a brick wall. We'll have a lot more insight on that towards the end of the program from Bernard Mostert. You might recall he is together with Bram van Hastien, the founders of a company called Techie Town that was sold into Steinhoff for three and a half billion rand just before Steinhoff went belly up and they were given shares effectively that are worthless. They want their company back or at least uh, some kind of value and they are battling with the lawyers who now run Steinhoff and uh, as we heard from him today, it was a big court case in Bernard Mostert's favour. We'll have that story coming up. We'll also hear a whole lot more about Tongot later in the programme from Chris Logan from Opportune, he's the man who's been focusing on that. Uh, that's with David Shapiro, who will join us in just a little while as our Monday evening market watcher. We will find out what's going on in China where the government has jumped in again onto the heads of new shareholders in a company called Didi Global, which is the Chinese equivalent of Uber, listed on the stock market in the United States on Wednesday, and the share price has been tumbling. Fortunately for them today, it is the American Day of Independence, so they haven't had the opportunity to yet absorb the full impact of another Beijing attack. And we'll also have tonight our currency focus. But before we get into all of that, it's time to pick up on the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart is with Biz News and in our virtual studio. Nadia, what's going on in the news today? So South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority said that Interpol has issued red notices for the two Gupta brothers wanted in connection with alleged corruption. The notices were issued for Atul and Rajesh Gupta and their wives and four other people, which was confirmed by Hermione Kronia, the head of National Prosecuting Authorities Investigating Directorate, in a statement today. That's interesting, Nadia. So it's uh, Atul and uh, Tony. Rajesh. Uh, yeah, Rajesh or Tony, but not, <laughs> not AJ, not the older brother. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is, but it's only like actually been the two of them that have been followed the most consistently. And the red notice is something that means if you travel anywhere in the world and you hand over your passport, up comes a red notice to say Interpol wants this fellow. So I guess that means they have to stick around in the UAE or wherever they might be right now. Yeah, because we're still not sure. But, I mean, they're saying that efforts are intensifying, so let's hope that it gets us somewhere. You know what gets me is that Jacob Zuma uh, says that he doesn't know what he's done wrong. And now we've got these Guptas who are being chased from by everybody, including Interpol. Every country in the world that they go to, they're going to get arrested in. And they were his pals. They were the guys that he facilitated. Oh, you wonder why the guys. Yeah, no, it's absurd. Indeed. Okay. And there's what no a- headway being made, but this is oh. at least good news. Well, what else? What else is in the news tonight? The latest alcohol ban in South Africa is piling on the pressure for AB InBev, which has long been struggling to recover from the massive acquisition of SA Breweries in 2016. So analysts have said that the acquisition was incredibly overpriced and that the global brewer has struggled for years to pay off the debt of $100 billion. And even though the group's first quarter data pointed that it may have been going better, now there's another alcohol ban. So would have known, but certainly SAB Miller shareholders here in South Africa will be delighted that they got out at the very top, including, I'll have you know, the managers of that company who cashed in all of their share options. And today they would be worth a heck of a lot less. 
And then uh, just on Zuma. So he is facing the 15-month jail sentence. Yesterday, the time expired for him to hand himself over. But he is saying that he fears the judicial system was being compromised. Um, so he's brought a case to the KZN Division of the High Court to have the Constitutional Court's decision rescinded, and this will be heard tomorrow. Now, that's really ridiculous. So you've got the Constitutional yeah. Court, which is the, the top court in the country, but the KZN High Court uh, can yeah. rescind the decision anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. But Justin Rowe Roberts has been watching the markets. Maybe there's something a little more rational there, Justin. Yeah, Alec, listen, there was no time to take a break after the weekend. The market news started pouring in from early this morning. First, the Steinoff news, which actually came on uh, late on Sens on Friday. Uh, many or, or those that still have some beer and wine available were still drinking at the time, so they were digesting this news this morning. Steinoff down 17%. Um, the All Share Index down around a half a percent to the 66,000 level. Interestingly, NASPIS and Process are both, both sharply lower. That's for, following the Chinese. Chinese regulators really clamping down on things there. We saw Alibaba, then after Tencent, then Baidu, and now Didi, the recently listed uh, Uber of China uh, that listed in the U.S. last week. Um, Tencent also holds a 6% stake in that company, and interestingly, they're around 6% down this morning as Chinese regulators keep interfering with business in the East. The rest of the all-share index is up around 8 tenths of a percent, though. So uh, those index heavyweights, which constitutes about a quarter of the index, are down 6%. Um, both 52-week uh, uh, lows for NASPIS and Process, but the rest of the all-share, so the SA Inc., um, Component around eight-tenths of a percent up. Uh, in the currency markets, the rand is stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand, 22 cents to the dollar, 19 rand, 69 cents to the pound, and 16 rand, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is up as resources across the board stay strong, trading at $1,792 an ounce. Last week was the first week that resources were up in around a month. Uh, so good news for South African and Australian investors where there are a lot of resource companies, resource-rich countries, of course. Uh, Kruger Rand is trading at approximately 26,500 Rand. Brent crude is staying incredibly resilient despite the Delta variant concerns, trading at around $77 a barrel. And Bitcoin uh, trading around the 480,000 Rand Mark. If I have to look at the price action on the JSE, a bit of a mixed bag. REITs and resources in the green and in the red, few financials, some retailers, bit of a mixed bag, but uh, volume is incredibly low because of the U.S. public holiday. And that big news coming out of uh, China into the United States uh, with a U.S. holiday on today. We won't quite know how much of an impact it is, but they are removing the Didi app from the app stores in China. So nobody new can sign up to it. One wonders how much of politics and or how much of business is related. They will be talking with Sean Pesh from Ranmore Funds about that whole story a little later. He's been warning us for a while now to stay away from NicePass and Process. Uh, so Steinhoff down 17%, Justin. Uh, clearly the settlement idea that they put on the table hasn't worked out anywhere near the way that the lawyers who are running the company now thought it would. Exactly, Alec. I haven't looked too in-depth at the actual uh, settlements and the process and what's happening there. But a few weeks ago, we did speak to Sid Vianello, and he was doing some rough calcs. And even if you unlist the PEPCO and you do this and you subtract the debt, it still doesn't make sense. So the market's maybe a bit iffy there, but 17%, it's a big drop. But as we say, let's let's give it a day. Let's wait until the U.S. Independence Day is over. A uh, bit more volume tomorrow, and we'll get a clearer picture with the price action. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. David Shapiro is our man who takes us through the markets and all kinds of other interesting things on a Monday. Dave, lovely to be uh, chatting with you in the uh, Business Power Hour again today. The big story of the moment, Steinhoff, uh, the mm. judgment came out very strongly against the lawyers who are running Steinhoff right now. What's happened to the share price as a consequence? 
How will share prices come tumbling down? Look, it's been under a lot of pressure. Um, when they lost the Hamilton case, I think, and I don't know the full consequences of that, there was a little bit of a bouncer. But I think this is a major setback now. So, uh, you know, we have seen Steinhoff. I, I was looking at it in Europe this morning, and I saw it was down about you know, about 14%. It was one of the big underperformers. It's now down about 16 17% now which is uh, takes their market cap to about seven billion, but this is a this is a big setback. So um, where to where to from now, Alex? The big question is 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 it solvent? You know, what does this do to its uh, you know to to its future solvency? Can it continue? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not great at interpreting uh, uh, judgments and what the long term consequences are, but uh, it, it's getting pretty tight at the moment. Yeah, I want you. To, I suppose you've got to read through the full judgment or talk to someone mm. who's close to it. And mm. we're going to talk <laughs> a little later in the program to Bernard Mostert. Remember, uh, mm. Bernard uh, was together with Bram von uh, Hasty, and they were the guys at Tacky Town, and they sold Tacky Town mm. into Steinhoff mm. for billions. I think it was more than three billion rand. And they got shares in Steinhoff, which were worthless. Uh, yeah. And they maintain yeah. that Marcus Yoster always knew they were worthless. Mm. And they are mm. trying to get uh, their company back. They certainly won't get the money mm. back. But part of the process is they want to take Steinhoff mm. to court in September and liquidate them. Now, this mm. judgment presumably would promote their intentions. Well, this is against the other judgment of Steinhoff itself, which is trying to come to a compromise with uh, creditors saying, hold on a sec, you know, you, you're going to get nothing. This is the best we can do. At least we'll be able to come out of this and, and survive and, uh, and function. And now this one goes against that completely and says, no, we're going to liquidate you and we want our company back. So I don't know. I think the only people making huge amounts of money are the lawyers and advocates acting for the various parties. But I think they've got a strong case. Alec, I, the more I go through the case out of personal interest, and the more I see, I know that Syker is bringing a judgment against uh, Marcus Yuster. You know, when you look at the charges against him and you see... That's the accounting uh, body, Dave. That's the accounting body. In other words, what Marcus did was he resigned and they said, no, you can't resign <laughs> because if you resign, it means you can reapply for membership. So they want to have a case against him. Uh, which removes him, uh, you know, from ever reapplying as a chartered accountant. And that. But when you look at the charges and, uh, you know, read the charge sheet, you see what what was happening there. And, uh, you know, there's there's the whole involvement of Mayfair and everything. So it's a very complicated issue. Uh, you know, um, a lot of judgments to go through, a lot of court cases to go through. And and this, this is, I mean, this is an intricate situation that took place over, I don't know, 10, 15 odd years but you got, to unravel yeah. it all. Mm. You've you got to have sympathy for the guys from Techie Town. There they are. Yeah. They've got a, a good company. Oh, yeah. They sell it in good faith for three and a half billion uh, rand. Mm. Um, well, something around that mm. amount. Uh, they are given mm. Steinhoff shares in mm. uh, in. Do, yeah. The reason they took the Steinhoff shares was that they thought they could actually improve a division of Steinhoff that they mm. would now get to run it. Then they discover that the Steinhoff shares are mm. worthless. Then they hear from the new, the, from mm. the lawyers who are running Steinhoff, well, tough luck, you can get 10, 15 cents yeah. in the yeah. rand. And clearly from their side, they say, up yours. Why should it's we, why should we right. take that? You guys were uh, defrauded us and, uh, so yeah. you can understand why they want to liquidate. And on the other hand, the other creditors are probably saying, well, we bought the Steinhoff uh, debt for you know, cents in the rand anyway. So whatever mm -hmm. we can get uh, over and above mm -hmm. that, we make a profit. It just, it, it's, mm -hmm. it sounds a little ugly, the whole <laughs> the ugly face well, of capitalism. Yeah, is. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is. And you know, it all goes back to, to Marcus. I mean, if I lend you money, Knowing that, uh, or, you know, or sorry, you know, if I lend you money and you know that you're never going to repay me, that's fraud. You know, that's, that's fraud. And I think throughout the deals, uh, Marcus knew what he was doing. He knew that there were so many false, uh, um, kind of transactions going through. Everything was just nothing more than a house of cards. And it's quite intriguing to go through, you know, some of the reports. And in that case, I mean, it's just absolute fraud. But the number of people that he took 
Uh, and li- listen, we're getting, <laughs> we've got a few on our hands at the moment. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's not only Marcus. I think the EOH story is also turning out to be incredibly ugly as well. But they did it differently, David. Uh, Stephen mm, von mm, Koller mm, mm, has gone mm, after mm. the executives with this mm. story with mm. with Steinhoff. Mm. They have a report that costs shareholders yeah. tens, if not hundreds of millions mm. of rands mm. to compile by PwC, and they won't release it. They won't release mm-hmm. it in the public domain. It just doesn't, no, I, doesn't make you, sense, surely. And, and the, it, 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 we need it because um, all you've got is a summary, so you don't know what happened. You know, Until they release that report, we will never know what they uncovered and, and who was to blame and what kind of transactions because the summary is absolutely no good. You know, and mm-hmm. I don't know how they can go to court uh, without that report, because there's so much hearsay around this, uh, you know, around the report, and little bits have been released. So I agree absolutely. I know, whether it's a thousand page or not, it doesn't matter. Doesn't you can't matter. say, well, here's an 80 page summary and that, because it's the detail which is going to determine, you know, uh, what the eventual outcome is. Isn't it like arguing, uh, let's have the Zondo Commission in camera, in mm. other words, keep it mm. a secret, and we'll yeah. give you a little mm. report at the end mm. of executive summary. Mm. It just it, it beggars belief that yeah. government, which has got so much to lose, has been transparent, and corporate, mm. which is actually dealing with other people's yeah. money, uh, is is closing yeah. it up. Anyway, it is point. it is what it is. One of those other scandals is Tongot. We're going to pick up with mm. uh, Chris Logan in just a little while on that. But my goodness, those, that share price has been bouncing all over the place. It was seven rand yeah, seven. It went to nearly ten rand. Back to in the sevens. What's why would <laughs> well, this I be? thought it would recover. I don't know. Chris has got a much better uh, feel for it. But uh, we thought after last year that things were going right. But uh, I think the market turned around. Then the one thing that I couldn't reconcile and. I I hope Chris can give us the answer is that, uh, you know, if you look at Tongod's numbers, the, the sugar side was down quite dramatically. And then you compare that with RCL Foods, which comes out of Rembro, and they were uh, cheering the, the, you know, the sugar, the sugar uh, profits that they made, which is mainly kind of the Swaziland, uh, East, or we used to call them Pumalanga, Eastern uh, Transvaal area, and Pumalanga around there, down at Kamati Port. So I don't know, and also I think in Mozambique, so I don't know where the, uh, where the differences are. We've only got trading statements out of both of those companies, so we haven't been able to get into the full detail. But Tongod has been knocked, yeah, sure, on those on those numbers. Well, let's bring Chris in now. I uh, see he's ready to join us. Chris Logan from Opportune. We've been, uh, David Shapiro and I have been uh, talking a little about Tongod, Chris, and deferring to your judgment on it. Uh, we, we're trying to make sense of what's happening with this whipsawing share price and a couple of announcements that are a little confusing to us. Hopefully you can shine some light. Yes, thanks, Alec. Hi, David. Um, Well, I think, you know, suddenly a large amount of uncertainty and bad news has been put on the table by that SENS release of 29 April, which detailed two major setbacks. The first being that they'd missed their debt reduction target uh, relating to agreements, which they had to have agreements of 8.1 billion, and they were only at 6.6 billion, which and they were supposed to achieve that by 30th of March. And as things stand, they still haven't got there. And um, you know they'll give an update when they release their results on the 13th of July. Then the second thing is there's been a major problem in their refined sugar operation. Um, They refine all the sugar in South Africa, and um, there was uh, plans to materially increase that to 450,000 tonnes. Previously, the plan level was only 304,000 tonnes. Now, with that major planned increase, there were a lot of production losses, production increased production costs and inefficiencies. They spoke about a 25,000 ton sugar production loss. And they still haven't, they, they mentioned that this was material and they still haven't clarified how material it is. Um, even on 1st of June, you know, they still hadn't, 
been in a position to clarify it, and we still don't know. So in a nutshell, this new team from almost playing a perfect game has dropped a number of balls, which, you know, in my view, isn't a huge surprise given all they've had to contend with. But but these are certainly, you know, disappointing. I mean, you've, you've got to read their sugar pro- problems with the RCL announcement of 1st of July where they talked about a strong sugar recovery. Mm. That's what David was saying a moment ago, Chris. He was saying exactly that. Why is it that RCL is managing to make uh, hay out of the sugar market, whereas Tongart, with its pretty vaunted uh, management team, we all, as you said earlier, uh, were very impressed with the way uh, that Gavin Hudson and co. have been addressing this. They dropped, well, they they lose money. It, It sounds strange. Yes. Yeah, look, I mean, we'll only really know on the 13th of July when they release their results. But just standing back and having some empathy for them, you can imagine all the things they've had to contend with. And we also know it was against the backdrop of a, you know, pretty inefficient and um, archaic organization. And then suddenly you've got to ramp up refined sugar production by 50%. And... It looks like the wheels came off, certainly in that division. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some other problems they detailed. So, yeah, look, it, it's it's disappointing, um, but perhaps not totally unexpected. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to wait. But I, I, I certainly think, you know, it, it brings you back to the scope of, of the degree to which this organization was allowed to you know, going to decline. David? Yeah, two interesting points there. And uh, I know land sales, um, they they mentioned that because of COVID, they weren't allowed to progress. But, I mean, even so, would they have? It's it's, it's a difficult area at the moment, uh, land sales. The other one was when I looked at Barlow's results, you know, they were doing pretty well out of the starch business. When I looked at... The Tongot's results, they complained about the seven months that they had. I think it, it dragged them down. So, again, another little bit of a conflict in, in, in Barlow's who took over the starch business, who seemed to, um, you know, who, who were quite satisfied with the business that they took over. Maybe it was a reduced value or whatever it was. So, you know, quite a few issues there as well. But, but Jay, look, yeah, I, to be I, fair, Dave, wait for the numbers. Mm. To be fair, David, Barlow's have just paid five billion rand for the start yeah. business. They're not going to say that it isn't a good deal. <laughs> no, no, fair point. <laughs> yeah, there could be some timing anomalies mm. in that start, you know, just with the mm. various lockdowns. But absolutely, mm. look, it's it's a um, disappointing sequence of events mm. over the last number of months, and um, yeah. It's time they announced that they got $3 billion from Deloitte for signing the accounts for the last five years. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be the start of the Deloitte story. We want to see some more of it coming elsewhere as well. I think uh, – can Deloitte do that? Can they actually can – they, can they find professional indemnity insurance? Come on, David, you're a chartered accountant. Uh, Chris, I think you are as well, aren't you? Chris? Yeah. Are you, are you both CAs? <laughs> Yes, yes. There are a lot of yes, questions sure. to be asked, Alec. A lot, I mean, and, I'm, and I'm serious. I, I, you know, I, I know it's very difficult to be accountants and that, but to allow that kind of slippage, there's got to be investigations. You know, we were just talking about Steinoff. We were talking about EOH. We were talking about a whole lot of other businesses. And uh, you rely on your auditors as uh, as a backstop. You know, you rely on your independent directors and you rely on your rely on your auditors. They are the backstop that uh, report. We can't dig into the accounts. You know, I can't knock on Gavin's door, and I'm not blaming Gavin or or or, or Marcus Eustace's door and say, listen, I want to look at the accounts. You know, I'm an investor. They say, Mm-mm. no, but. That's That's critical. That's a critical point Mm. because the auditors get paid handsomely Mm. and we as retail investors absolutely believe in Mm. the story they tell us that they Mm. are worth the handsome fees that they're charging. Now, if an auditor resigns the account, uh, I think that's a big (laughs) wave that we should now be, be certainly a flag that we should be looking at. But 
if they resign without telling us why. And I think this is really the big problem when it comes from a, a, a retail investor's perspective, is that we are always the ones sucking mm. the hind tit. Um, somebody mm. seems to look at Steinhoff, as we were talking about earlier, David. Mm. There are mm. uh, there are tens of millions of rands being made by the guys who are managing the company now, mm. uh, but they haven't put mm. any skin of theirs in the game. Whereas mm-hmm. the skin in the game is with many small shareholders. And here we go mm-hmm. to Tongart as well with a similar situation. Mm-hmm. But Chris, just getting back, were you being flippant when you said they're going to get 3 billion rand from Deloitte or Trafford? Not at all. Not at all. You know, let's just look at the chain of events here. We know this um, fraud continued for seven years. We know it wasn't a complex one. Um, my, both myself and Alan Gray, you know, highlighted that something was hugely wrong in about July 2018, and I took them to task during their August AGM. And then Dave Willem detailed the fraud to the T. Each aspect of it, Dave Willem detailed in the report he handed to Gavin in early March. He not only detailed it all, he said there would have to be restatements. I mean, if you just look at Dave's Report and he only had access to public info. It details it to the T. So there's no way that um, Deloitte's uh, board, that Tongart board, can allow this to slip. And the reality is, by Deloitte's not picking up on it, it prevented the board from taking corrective action four or five years ago. You know, that's the reasoning. So, you know, they, the board was failed to be alerted. They could have taken preventive action, you know, and it could be a completely different story. So, unfortunately, Deloitte is in a pickle here, and, you know, shareholders have every right and duty to see that this is carried to its finality because the appeal court in that has have clarified shareholders cannot claim against Deloitte. Mm-hmm. It's up to the board. So it's black and white. So has the board uh, lodged a claim yet? Look, we did talk about this at last, the last AGM, and they basically intimated <laughs> that it would happen um, in a structured way. Um, the first thing was to get Deloitte to um, sign off on its last audit last year, where Deloitte picked up $85 billion, million. Um, So, yes, you know, I, I'm quite serious um, I think there's a big number coming for for you know shareholders. Who pays that, David? You you were uh, well, you were both partners, presumably, or not partners, but you both mm-hmm. uh, part of the profession. Who actually ends up making that three billion? Is it insurance who who going to kick it in, or will it be the partners themselves? Well, it depends what kind of insurance. You know, the insurers are not just going to hand over if there was uh, sheer negligence, if it's something that could have been uh, prevented or avoided. So I don't know the full extent of that, but uh, otherwise the rest of the partnership picks up. Uh, Look at, remember Anderson with Enron, the whole firm collapsed. You know, there was no way that they they could meet that kind of bill. And, you know, there's one thing that I want to say, and I've, I've, I've always criticized um, management for saying, oh, we never look at the share price. I never look at the share price. I just worry about the business. You should look at the share price because in many cases, the share price is a barometer of what's people knowing things. If there's bad information that leaks out, you've got to ask, why did my share price go down today? You know, what information was it? No, it's not always easy to reconcile it. But I mean, um, if you watch share price performance against profit performance, what the directors are telling you and what's coming out, <laughs> leaking out, you sometimes get uh, an indication that, hold on a thing, things are not right, you know, and you've got to start looking, that, looking at that. And it's the same thing that auditors must do. You know, they need another sense to actually do an audit. They've got to go out. You can't just look at the pure numbers that are given to you and you get young clerks who go in there with a laptop and start asking you questions and they tick. You've got to have, you've got to be able to actually understand the business and understand what people are saying about it and what information is leaking out and follow up on those things. Because I watch the market every day, Alec, and I promise you, you get clues 
<laughs> you know, you get you get clues on what's happening in the business. Chris, uh, what do shareholders in Tonga do now? Well, you know, I think they've got to interrogate the results when they come out on July the 13th. I mean, you know, these setbacks, the debt reduction targets and the refined sugar could be just be temporary setbacks, um, which you'd hope, given the strength of the team that's in place. But, you know, I mean, I certainly think they should start saying, well, where are the proceeds from all these legal actions? How much? Because I think it's very material. Um, anyway, you know, because as, as we say, this was a simple fraud. If Dave Willem, who is a great, great analyst, but if he can detail everything... Mm. Uh, mm. From the outside. You know, yeah. They should actually put Dave on as a, as a director to, in charge of recovery. Mm. Why don't they? Why, why, don't, why don't companies do things like that? Uh, ask a man. Dave is a former financial director of a bank. He's a chartered accountant. Why wouldn't a board of directors pull someone like him in rather than going back to the, the old usuals? Because Dave's a Rottweiler rather than a poodle. <laughs> and what does Warren Buffett say about that, David Shapiro? Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> On your remuneration committee, you must put uh, Rottweilers, not, not Cocker Spaniels. Not Cocker Spaniels, <laughs> not lapdogs. Chris Logan, David Shapiro, thanks as ever. Sean Pesh from Ranmore Funds joins us now from a, an unusual location. Sean, I'd like to uh, share with our uh, audience and our community where uh, our, our contributors are coming from. And yours is one definitely that I haven't spoken with before. <laughs> Alec, um, yeah, we're in, uh, we're in Mallorca. And we've gone for the rural location, but uh, the Wi-Fi has not been fantastic. You certainly couldn't be a high-frequency trader from where uh, where we're staying at the moment. So I'm currently sitting in a car park in little in the Biz News radio car. I would guess. There we go. Well, very good to hear that, Sean. Uh, there's lots going on at the moment in the Far East, and it's really relevant for South Africans given the high. A weighting of NASPERS and process shares in portfolios in this country. Now, you've been uh, cautious about NASPERS and process, uh, and that's putting it diplomatically, for a while now. All of the stuff that's coming out of China, um, and we'll talk re- about the most recent listing of uh, Didi uh, or the Chinese version of Uber uh, and what the what Beijing's done about it in just a moment. But just retrace a little, if you would, your cautions about the uh, invest- investments that South Africans have in NASPASS and PROCESS. Well, Alec, I, I mean, I've got a, one of my employees, quite rightly, always says you want to learn from the mistakes of others. And I had the, um, I made the error many years ago of being invested in UCOS, which was listed in Russia. And, uh, you know, Russian regime and and basically the Russian regime stole the company, uh, ripped the guts out and shareholders lost everything. And and I'm seeing the same sort of action in China. And I know everybody's attracted by the Chinese growth. And the, but I just actually think that's illusory. And it does really worry me that South African investors and South African savers have got so much money invested um, in, in that NASPERST stable. And, and have been vocal and for, for no, I mean, it doesn't benefit me at all. I'm not a long NASPERS process. I'm not short NASPERS process. I've got no options. I've got nothing other than the, you know, hopefully people can learn from the mistakes that I had many years ago. And, uh, and so that's really the backdrop. Um, and I think for, up until now, maybe everybody has been focused on the, this Chinese growth and the greed angle, but I think it's time to start worrying about the fear. And uh, and I guess this has all come to pass in the last couple of months. Well, we remember what happened with Alipay. It was due to be listed the biggest IPO in the United States ever. And two days before the listing, it was pulled. Uh, now, Correct. this past week, we've had uh, a, an even worse story potentially because Didi, which mentioned is the Chinese equivalent of Uber, did list yep. on the New York Stock Exchange, but it was almost like a triggering that listing, some pretty harsh actions coming out of Beijing. 
Well, that's quite right, Alec. And I mean, if you also think that in the last few years, what we had some gaming clampdowns, if you might recall, a few years ago, they uh, they, they halted the issue of new or the licensing of new games for the likes of NetEase and Tencent. More recently, we've had the crypto clampdown and, and Moitan has been exposed for uh, anti-competitive behavior and antitrust rules. And that was in May this year. So so the interesting thing, just thinking about it, you know, what, what we found with Russia was was these were excuses. They weren't the real reason. And so you think, you know, you, you, you hear about data control and, and cyber security reviews. Those are excuses. Those are not the reasons. In the same way as UCOS, it was tax. And, and, and so I've been trying to think, well, what are the reasons? Is it you know, it definitely can't be data because if it was data, well, was we only 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 being suspended for new users. Well, what about all the existing users? It, the the Chinese government can't be sending a message because they already sent a message with Jack Ma. We I think we've seen him for forty eight seconds since October last year. I mean, he's been we don't know where he is. Um, so there there can't be another message. And and I just wonder if this is not and this is the worry is this now an attack on the ten cent. You know, monopoly or not monopoly, but um, a dynasty, I guess. And the other thought is uh, these are both U.S. listed entities. Remember, Alibay was going to try and list in went well, in in Hong Kong, and uh, but this is now DD has listed in the U.S. and um, and so I just worry that that China is concerned that they're losing control because this is now going to be listed over in the U.S. and you've got SEC rules and things like that. Um, but it is concerning that four billion you know, investors, U.S. investors, invested four billion dollars, and and that is going to take a hit. And I think U.S. regulators will be right to say, well, this is unacceptable. You've just listed three days ago. Um, either management didn't know what was going on; they weren't informed. And if they weren't informed, well, then it's a pointless exercise ever speaking to Chinese management because the government really is in control, and that then comes to the rating. Um, but I mean, can you imagine a South African company or the South African government deal like that? I can't. I can't believe that they would. What exactly um, have they done, Sean? Just to to, to retrace. So they have, yeah. So they have removed the Didi. They've ordered all local um, app stores to remove the Didi Web uh, app from their app stores. Okay? So, and so let's, so let's it, understand yeah. that it's like Uber being instructed yeah. by the U.S. government to remove. The Uber app from the Apple and and Google app stores, similar to that's that. right. But the difference is, I think that in the US you'd find Uber suing the government and saying, "Well, we're not going to do that," um, and appealing and getting urgent injunctions. And I don't think that's going to happen in China. And and the reason is, well, if you're so concerned about this, uh, the data that they've got, well, why does that only apply to new users? Because presumably most people who are going to use the DD platform are already using it. Well, maybe so that's, it's just a message. Hmm. Maybe that that penny it's is going to drop, and the yeah. uh, and and they might actually ban the whole thing. Which, which the the point that you made there was that in the U.S. companies do have recourse to the courts. In China, uh, what this company has done is said, "Oh, terribly sorry, we will we take your your point." I mean, it it was a really groveling apology from Didi to the Chinese government, which appears to be behaving really badly. Well, totally. And I think it just shows you where the power lies. In China, the government is in charge. And so then when you start thinking about a moat, you know, if any Chinese company says that they have a moat, well, I mean, I guess all you could say is, well, look how quickly the Chinese government stormed the drawbridge. I don't think there is a moat in China, I would argue. When you know? I spoke, so that is the worry. When I spoke with Bob van Dijk about this issue, because it's been, it's been coming for a while now. You mentioned Jack Ma. It's been months uh, since yeah. there was that attack on him. After he spoke out, and then, of course, we've seen interesting things happening in Hong Kong as well, where Didi and Tencent are domiciled. Uh, he said, yeah. well, the, the the Chinese government are looking at various issues and you've got to work within the, the laws of China. But it's almost it sounds almost like appeasement. It sounds almost like, well, we better not anger the Chinese government because they might get even harder on us. However, uh, they don't seem to be playing according to anybody's rules excepting Beijing's. I think that's absolutely right, Alec. You know, in a wrestling match, if you tap the person on the shoulder, it means you concede. Well, I just think they're carrying on strangling. I mean, look, they're carrying on. You know, And this is not going to be over straight away. 
because Didi have already warned that this could be a hit to revenue. So you would think that there were other ways that the Chinese government, if they were really concerned about the data issue, well, they could have sat down, done a review behind the scenes, you know, quietly, subtly, etc. Um, but they haven't. They've chosen a quite a draconian action with really what seems to be no substance. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it. I think it really is worrying. And as I say to you, you know, if, if people rate South African companies, you know, you look at some of the miners, their concerns as to what's going to happen with the mining reviews and all of that. Well, that's nothing compared to this. This is overnight, you know, three days, boom, you're suspended from business. And as you rightly say, they can easily tomorrow just say actually the DD app suspended, end of story. But worse than that and, for and South then, Africans is uh, they could tomorrow decide that, uh, much of ten cents business is no longer uh, applicable. Given that ten cents we uh, WeChat app is got nine hundred million Chinese, now that's got to be yeah. pretty uh, dangerous or a pretty high risk. So, what does it mean for South African investors in nice person process? Um, I, I just think people have not been attuned to the risks, and I think there are high risks. And I think that the Chinese companies are just—I mean, let's just let's just put some numbers to this, okay? Yeah, and, and instead of billions of, of dollars, let's just talk millions of rands. If I came to you and I said, Alec, I've got this business which does 20 million rand of revenue and it loses 2 million rand um, how, and it's very exposed to Chinese regulation, how much would you offer me? You know, would you offer me 74 million rand? Would you offer really? No, I can't believe that you would. And yet, and yet Didi is worth $74 billion. And it listed just before quarter end when you know, my, the conspiracy theorist in me says that that was so that accounting profits on valuation and all the rest could be booked um, by the shareholders. And I think the other important thing is it's not just U.S. shareholders, because remember, SoftBank owns 20% of this company, so it's actually Japanese shareholders as well. So basically, the Chinese government's talking about international investors. And so I don't think the Chinese government wants uh, their local citizens to get very wealthy off the back of international investors. That is, that is how I'd probably summarize it. But I think we need to be very attuned to the risks because these things can go tomorrow. And in Russia, you know, those companies are on five, six times earnings. Um, but in China, because of this illusion of the Chinese growth, they somehow are on multiples of revenue. And I think it's crazy. Um, and so that's the worry. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Andre Salier uh, from Treasury One joins us for our weekly chat about the currency markets. Andre, and it was interesting going back after the second quarter's uh, results, in other words, the three months to the end of June to see that emerging market currencies, the rand amongst them, had their best three months against the U.S. dollar in seven years. I guess that puts it all in perspective for us. Yes, indeed. And if we look at the rand and the levels that we've reached in that quarter, you know, we've been as low as 1340, then that tells us the story, how well the emerging market space has done in that period. Uh, towards the end of the quarter, it ran out of steam a little bit, uh, but we can discuss those factors. But we've certainly had a fantastic quarter. Uh, we've had a fantastic year so far, uh, both the first and the second quarter. Uh, and that was, uh, for us, mostly linked to uh, commodity prices that had done extremely well in that period. Uh, but we must also not forget that that was also the period where COVID-19 took a little bit of a back step uh, in the start periods of that uh, quarter, first and second quarter, and economies started getting back onto steam uh, and growth started showing. Yet, in the most recent couple of weeks, it's gone the other way for emerging markets, particularly in South Africa, where the third wave has now brought another lockdown, which I guess has implications. It certainly does have implications. Uh, we know that the restaurant industry is basically closed again. Uh, you know, to say that they can survive on takeaways is simply just not going to happen. So there's a lot of jobs being lost there. Impact definitely uh, on the economy. Tourism sector uh, is is in the doldrums. Uh, we know that in Gauteng, people cannot 
leave the province for leisure purposes. Uh, and we must not forget that that's the hub of the country. So I would reckon somewhere between 50, I, I hear that the figures that people say is 60% uh, of all tourism emanates from Gauteng into other provinces. So uh, that certainly will have a dramatic impact, uh, especially since we've not really seen uh, international travelers uh, pouring back into the country. We've also seen that uh, the airlines has actually suspended their flights in most cases, not only uh, for the first week or so of the lockdown, uh, but for the whole of July. You know, that spells very, very negative things for our economy and the impact on our economy going forward. You know, it's so interesting, uh, Andre. You're in Cape Town. I'm in Cape Town, yes. Uh, up here in the north, uh, I remember that the jokes that used to go around where the Cape Tonians would say, look, guys, you, you Valleys can stay up north. Just send us the money. Post it to us this time. Don't come and come and mess up our beaches. And it's a similar thing with, with in KwaZulu-Natal. They don't really want the tourists there, but they need the tourism money. And the point you made a moment ago, 60% of all tourism internally comes from Gauteng. And, of course, with the lockdowns, meaning that, there's nothing going out. Those those checks aren't being sent either. It's quite significant when you consider the impact that tourism has on the economy generally, and particularly for the coastal regions. Absolutely, uh, you know, it's it's. If you just think in terms of wine farms, you know, they can even come back uh, this week and say that they're opening up restaurants again. Uh, but if tourism doesn't come back. Uh, to the Western Cape, your wine farms is in serious trouble. They rely on those people. Uh, it's people that is heavily invested into the restaurant industry. We know about all the fancy restaurants on all the wine farms. And if those things are standing empty, uh, those people are certainly in trouble. And our hotels are not filling up. Uh, it's, it's just a absolutely... Uh, add-on situation all the time and, and it's a lot of jobs that's on the line in a country where we desperately desperately need the creation of jobs and that unfortunately if we don't see the jobs being created uh, that increases our poverty uh, it's the it's the poorest of people that get uh, negatively influenced by that and unfortunately uh, that will ev eventually also have uh, an effect on our politics uh, because those people will walk to the polling booth, especially this year when we have municipal elections, and they will vote accordingly uh, because they are really uh, battling. What does all of this mean for the currency? Now we've we sketched that the emerging market currencies, including the rand, have had a good year and a fantastic second quarter in particular. Does that ring some kind of a bell to say, watch out, it could be very different in the second half of the year? I think the second half can be very, very different. Now, we must uh, keep in mind that a weak economy in South Africa generally bodes well for the exchange rate. And that's uh, simply because the weaker the economy, the less you import, uh, because there's just no use uh, and, and demand for products. So generally, under normal circumstances, a, a weak economy will bode well for the exchange rate uh, because your exports continues to be on the high side, imports low. Uh, and that was certainly also part of, uh, and we've seen that hitting our trade figures in the first and second quarters. The third quarter, to me, spells a little bit something different. Even with demand being low, uh, we might not see a positive effect on the exchange rate. And that would be linked to a third wave. Uh, it would be linked to very slow vaccinations um, and, and, and a walk of financial transactions. Uh, foreign investors will take their money and they will run. Uh, because that will tell them that this economy, at the slow pace of vaccinations, it's estimated at the rate that we're vaccinating people, that we will only get to about 50% of the population by the end of 2023. Now, that's a long time off. 
And if that's the case, uh, the continuous negative effect on the economy will make investors take their money and run, go to countries where vaccination rates, and there's many of them, not only first world countries, there's emerging markets that is way ahead of ourselves in terms of their vaccination rate. So I'm afraid that even with low demand, uh, the impact of the third wave and the slow vaccination process might turn things around in the third quarter. Uh, and we could see some nasty negative influences on the exchange rate. It's some very relevant stuff that you've highlighted there. We had this morning news from our partners at the Wall Street Journal that the UK is proving, because so many people there have been vaccinated, that a vaccine is a 95% shield against mortality from COVID-19. That's an extraordinary number. And hence, the UK can open up their economy again on the 19th of July, as they are projecting. For this economy, uh, without the vaccinations, I guess wave after wave is is possible. Wave after wave is possible. And chances are, if we look at the infections coming through, the rate of infections coming through, the amount of infections coming through, uh, chances are that uh, comes the end of this week uh, when Mr. Ramaphosa uh, will most probably address the nation again because he introduced the lockdown level four levels uh, for a period of two weeks uh, to be addressed again. Chances are that it will be extended and that will be perceived extremely negative uh, and we could see quite an impact then on the RAND. Up to this point in time, it was mainly driven by the US dollar, uh, mainly driven by inflation figures, and a little bit less focus on the uh, COVID for, uh, COVID-19 level 4 restrictions. But if he extends this by the end of this week, I'm afraid to say that we could see quite a nasty effect on the exchange rate. So watch the vaccinations and hope that, not hope, uh, urge the authorities to start rolling those out as aggressively as possible. I cannot understand why they do not get greater and bigger involvement from the private sector in terms of vaccinations. Why the heck they want to be the only ones rolling this out uh, and you know sending out uh, the doses to uh, the private places, you know, get everybody on board, just do it as widely as possible and as quick as possible, ultimately, and you've mentioned that, that's the saviour, that's how you will be open up, will be able to open up your economy uh, and return to some level of normality. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Bernard Mostert joins us now. You guys own Techie Town. It was bought by Steinhoff with shares that were worthless. Uh, of course, you didn't know that at the time. Uh, and now you've been fighting with Steinhoff to try and get either your company back or value for the company. Uh, there was an announcement today, which on the face of it seemed to be in your favor. Alex, yes. I, I think the um, announcement that you referred to was put out by Steinhoff on Sens, um, uh, relating to the judgment made by Justice Lee Bosilek, in which he declared that two actions that Steinhoff took post the uh, announcement of the uh, accounting irregularities and the unlawful conduct as, as identified by Steinhoff, and he declared void um, the financial assistance that a Steinhoff subsidiary, Sipple, um, had extended to its holding company in order to, with the attempt to benefit what is termed financial creditors. Um, now, the financial creditors of Steinhoff, by and large, today are hedge funds that represent third parties, and mostly they deal in distressed debt. So they um, acquired Steinhoff debt at a very deep discount. Um, they're hoping to get a full recovery on the original value of those loans, plus a 10% interest rate on an annualized basis. And um, Judge Bosilek's ruling put that recovery for them very much in doubt but it also confirms the one thing that was most intriguing to me, and that is that Steinhoff acted outside of the South Africa's Companies Act 
after the event of 2017. We still don't know if they acted outside of the scope of the South African Companies Act before because Steinhoff sits on the PwC report that they don't release. But um, Judge Bosilek's ruling says that the argument that the 2013 resolution that was also attacked was unconvincing, but the 2019 resolution definitely did not meet the required test and therefore he declared it void. And what happens for the Steinhoff managers now, remembering that they are primarily lawyers from Worksman's, many of them? But the, the truth is that um, Louis de Prea, who ran Steinhoff, was with Worksman's. Um, and before that, before he joined Steinhoff in 2017, he had done a lot of work for Steinhoff over many years. He also did a lot of work for some of those directors personally. So he does have a long, deep history within Steinhoff. Um, and I think he's, he's well familiar with the structures. Um, and then Theodore Clapp, who's the CFO of Steinhoff, is a very long-time Steinhoff man. Um, and there is, even though I have no particular opinion on it, nor can I make an accurate assessment, there is a subset of, of the litigants that believe that they have incurred certain personal liabilities having passed this resolution invalidly which is the resolution that Judge Bosilek have um, voided now. So I think that might also come out in time. Um, so we see, but I think it's a tough road. You know, the compensation of the compensation of Steinhoff senior managers, it's always interesting to me, you know, because it's, if you were seriously interested in saving the company, and if I was in that seat, I would have taken a lot of shares because then you believed in the value of the shareholding. But not a single Steinhoff director has bought any shares in the open market nor received shares for payments since 2017. And that is a, is a big vote of no confidence in the future of the company for me. Um, and the salaries relative to the size of the business is just um, enormous. I mean, the two top men there now earn 110 odd million rand a year between the two of them. Oh, it's, a, it's an astounding figure. Why do shareholders not do something about that? Well, shareholders have voted against the compensation plan twice now. Um, so, but the vast majority of Steinhoff's control now vests for the time being with the financial creditors who believe that they sat on all the security. Now, a very sizable portion of the security was punctured through Judge Bosilek's judgment. Um, and it would be interesting to see what flowed from there. So what do you think will flow from here, Bernard? You're very close to it, and thank you for unpacking all of this for us. But what do you think the next step would be in this whole process? I can tell you what I would like the next step to be, but I can't necessarily tell you what the next step will be because I've become accustomed to being a, a slightly skeptical about this whole process. You know, Because when the news broke in 2017 and the, and the whole world was misled that Steinhoff had appointed PwC to do a forensic report, we thought that this would act, that this was actually a a process that was designed to um, wrong to to right the wrongs of the past. Um, then, after more than a year, we were told that Steinhoff never appointed PwC. Worksman's did. That certainly wasn't disclosed adequately. And um, so, to answer your question, I think it would be very very good to have the entire history of Steinhoff out in the open. I would like to see those who allegedly contributed to the downfall of Steinhoff be charged. I would want them to have their day in court. I would want them, if they were guilty, to get a, a punishment that is commensurate with the crime. As a rule, what we've seen in our business, and I think it's the same here, people commit acts, unlawful acts, because... In the first instance, mostly they have to. The second, because they found a way. The third is because the punishment, if caught, is acceptable to them. And the fourth is they believe that they will not be, they will not ever be found guilty. You know, so if we don't bring Steinhoff out into the open and we don't see the insights of the PwC report, and for instance, we don't have the benefit of an inquiry that shows what happened this might just be swept under the rug completely. And in that regard, I'm, I'm very, very much energized by the actions taken by a company like EOH who have taken decisive action against those that have been 
fingered in their particular case. It's a little bit like uh, the Zondo Commission is turning South African politics away from being a republic of no consequences. What you are proposing is that there also are consequences for similar corporate malfeasance. Absolutely, and I and I and hopefully we can agree on this. You know, the, because otherwise it just it it speaks to those four pillars of wrongdoing that I just dealt with. Um, if you can get away with it, and you're talking about one of the ten largest frauds in, in the world's history, um, what stops the next person from seeing what loopholes are available to them when they need a loophole to present something that is not accurate at the time? You know? And that was the Biz News Power Hour for today, Monday, the 5th of July. From me, Alec Hogg, and our team, until the next time, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.